Good morning, church family. I'd like to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and look with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 15. We'll be in Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 6 this morning. Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. I don't know if you noted on that song that the choir and Jillian sang, but if you look at the very bottom in your worship guide, you'll notice who wrote that song. None other than Pastor Laramie and Jillian herself. And so we're so thankful to the Lord for the gifts and talents God has given to the body of Christ and thankful for a host of them who use your gifts and talents to honor and glorify the Lord. In fact, this text of scripture that we turn our attention to this morning has something to say about we as the people of God using uh, our love for one another to glorify the Lord. Romans chapter 15 will be in verses 1 through 6 this morning. Romans chapter 15 verses 1 through 6. And here in this passage of scripture, the apostle Paul seeks to teach us this truth. Believers demonstrate the life of Christ. Believers demonstrate the life of Christ and live out the testimony of Scripture. Believers demonstrate the life of Christ and live out the testimony of Scripture when we, willing, when we willingly put our brothers and sisters first. Believers demonstrate the life of Christ and live out the testimony of Scripture when we willingly put our brothers and sisters first. Paul, here in Romans chapters 14 and 15 thus far, has been making a case that we in the body of Christ have a very specific way in which we're to live in relationship with one another. We've noted throughout this time Paul's use of the word weak. For example, if you look at Romans chapter 14, verse 1, Paul writes these words, as for the one who is weak in faith. And we've noted as we've gone through Romans chapter 14, now into Romans 15, that Paul here is not talking about a weakness of salvific faith. He's talking about a weakness as it relates to maybe what we might consider piety or sanctifying faith. We've noted throughout our time together in Romans 14 that each of us at different periods of our lives demonstrate strength of faith and weakness of faith. There are times in my life when my faith is indeed weak. There are times in my life when indeed my faith is strong. And Paul has something to say in this context of Romans 14 and 15 about weakness of faith and, and strength of faith, strongness of faith, as it relates primarily in this text to two different groups of people who come from two different backgrounds, and those two different backgrounds in many ways are completely, totally different than the expression of the body of Christ or the expression of the body of Christ is to be. One of the beauties of the body of Christ is that God has taken people who are so different than one another and he's placed us in the body of Christ 
that we might seek to glorify and honor him. A similar demonstration would be that of marriage. For those of you who have had the joy of living your life in marriage, you have experienced those uh, examples or those influences or those, or those times in your life when you know that person that you're married to is just so drastically different than you are or desire different things than you do. But what do we do in the context of that marriage? We work to find common ground so that through the example of marriage, we might display the beauty of the glory of God in Christ. And Paul, here in this text of Scripture, is concerned for two primary reasons. One reason he mentions on a number of different occasions. The issue related to dietary laws. The Jews were apparently becoming a minority in the church at Rome. And for the Gentiles, they had no problem eating certain meats or meats that were prepared in a certain way. The cow was strangled, no big deal. We'll gladly eat the steak tonight. For the Jews, it was offensive. They had been taught throughout their time, growing up through the synagogue, through the Old Testament scriptures, that you should not eat meat that had been strangled. And so for them, it was a difficult expression to find themselves living in community with other people who had a view that was so contrary to theirs. And primarily what Paul is relating to here in Romans 14 and 15 is the community meal. You might remember as Paul is writing the book of Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is reflecting on the Lord's Supper but he's reflecting on the Lord's Supper as part of a larger expression that the church had with one another. It was a common thing for the church to come together and have a common meal. Now, as Baptists, we know a little bit about common meals, do we not? For some of us, we don't have that common meal near as often as we should. So Paul is saying, when you come together for these common meals, you're going to be with other brothers and sisters in Christ. He's making the plea. If you know that bringing that piece of meat would cause your brother or sister to stumble, if it would weaken their faith further, if it would grieve them, as he said last week, Don't do it. Put it aside. Lay it aside. Put your other brother and sister ahead of yourself. And here in this text of Scripture, Paul reminds us that we demonstrate the life of Christ clearly when we're willing to put our brothers and sisters first. Look how he demonstrates this here in Romans 15, verses 1 through 6. Verses 1 through 2, he says, Believers should carry the burdens of others. Or we should carry the weaknesses of others. Verses 1 and 2, We who are strong have an obligation 
to bear with the weaknesses of others and not to please ourselves. Or as our ESVs translates this, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves, lest each of us please his neighbor for his own good to build him up. Paul uses some strong language throughout Romans 14 and 15 to make his case, but for sure here in Romans chapter 15, verse 1, we who are strong have, notice what he says, an obligation. This is something that we must do. This is something that we ought to do. He uses this word also at the very beginning of Romans chapter at the very beginning of Romans, in Romans chapter 1, to communicate the obligation that believers have to those who are unconverted, to those who are lost. He uses this, this exact same word. In some of our translations write of that word, we have a debt to those who do not believe. And Paul is saying, to those who are stronger in faith, you owe a debt to those who are weaker in faith. You have an obligation to those who are weaker in faith. To do what? To strengthen them. To encourage them in the faith. Notice the end of verse two, to build them up. Paul is just acknowledging what is or should be a natural observation with any grouping of people. If we just had two of us in the life of this church, we would still have battle from time to time, would we not? Why? We're two different people. We've been raised with two different expressions, with two different backgrounds, with two different understandings as it relates to traditions. And Paul is saying when it comes to these non-essentials, that we have a deep responsibility. You might remember from chapter 14, verses 1 through 12, we have a deep responsibility toward one another to extend the ministry of hospitality to welcome one another in those areas of non-essential. It's an understanding we are not always going to agree with one another. Look to your neighbor and tell them, we're not always going to agree. It's a good confession, friend. It is a good confession to live your life with a theological understanding you are not always going to agree. If you don't live your life that way, then the moment that you face that first tension We're prone to say, I give up, I quit, I'm out of here. But when we live our lives with this understanding that we're going to disagree from from time to time, then it helps us when we reach that moment of disagreement to understand how we are to relate to one another. Notice who bears, who's responsible, who is to carry the burden here. Who bears the responsibility? The weak brother and sister or the strong brother and sister? 
the strong brother and sister or sister. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Now, my ESV, your ESV, if that's what you're reading from this morning, uses this word failings. Well, oftentimes we see this word failings and we think of something in a negative connotation, right? But remember what Paul is talking about here. He's not talking about issues that matter, uh, or first-tier issues, issues that matter as it, as it concerns whether I am willing to uh, submit my life to this group of people. This isn't an issue that, that says, well, if you believe that you can eat meat strangled from, an, from a, uh, uh, if you believe that you can eat meat that has been strangled, you're not a believer, but if you believe that you cannot eat meat that has been strangled, you are a believer. Paul is saying this has nothing to do with salvific faith. Remember that. This has nothing to do with very clear, articulated passages of scriptures of do's and don'ts. These are in these gray areas where there is no clear articulation, where some of us have convictions concerning these certain things. And Paul is saying there, we must work diligently to find, if you will, common ground to bear with one another in those moments. So for example, perhaps you think it would be just fine for you to bring a bottle of wine to our next member's meal. God bless you. There's a reason why you should not bring that bottle of wine to the next member's meeting. Paul is arguing from the context of this passage of Scripture that you should be willing to lay that aside for you know that there are brothers and sisters in the context of this church family who are completely offended or opposed to that expression of Christian liberty. Why would you do that and seek to offend your brother or sister as we seek to commune with one another. Paul's saying don't be offensive in that way. Those of you who are strong in the faith, you have an obligation to respond in this way, and notice the end of verse 1, and not to seek to please yourself. And by the way, This is a good general principle in life, is it not? Whether we're talking about in the context of the church or the context of our families or the context of our job, so much of our problems, many of our problems in culture and society in the church come from the fact that we just simply want what we want when we want it and I don't care about anybody else. Paul is saying, as you think about the corporate gathering of the people of God, our ultimate aim is not to come here and seek to do things that are pleasing to ourselves. There are times when we have to lay aside deeply held convictions 
to pursue the body of Christ. Now, I want to be sure again that you're understanding me here. I'm not saying that we lay aside our deeply held conviction that salvation is by faith in Christ alone. That's not what Paul is talking about here. In fact, if you go to Galatians, he's going to tell the church at Galatia, you bear a responsibility for the theology of the church and you ought to contend for the faith. So Paul isn't talking about these issues such as uh, are clearly articulated in the text of Scripture. He's talking about those issues of, not, of a non-essential nature. And so what does he say in verse 2? Let each of who? Us. Let each of us please his neighbor for his own good. For what purpose? To build him up. Paul has already in some ways communicated this truth in chapter 12, verse 3. Look what he said in chapter 12, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself, what? More highly than he ought to think. This is what Paul is saying here in verse 2. Let each of us seek to please our neighbor. Now in the context of Romans, who is your neighbor? Who is your neighbor? You are quiet this morning. Who's everybody? It's not everybody. Thank you, Randy. Everybody in the church, I appreciate that. In the context of Romans, this idea of neighbor in this passage of Scripture is directly related to the brothers and sisters in the context of the gathering of the people of God. Look with me in Romans chapter 13 and beginning in verse 8. Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has to fill the law. For the commandments, you, not, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling the law. Paul's already used this word neighbor directly in application to the body of Christ and how we are to love one another. That is the one thing that we do indeed owe to one another. And so he says here in verse 2, let us. Who is the us here in verse 2? He gave an admonition in verse 1 that the weak are to respond in this way. Notice what he does now in verse 2. Let us. Each of us, brothers and sisters, every single one of us has a responsibility that we should please our neighbor for our neighbor's good. And what is our neighbor's ultimate good? What is the ultimate good of a brother or sister in Christ? 
to see him or her built up in the faith. Now, Paul has a lot to say about love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love does not insist on its own way. This is what Paul is talking about here, friends. When it relates to the body of Christ, there are times that I have to lay aside certain convictions or certain thoughts or certain desires so that I might demonstrate well my love for the body of Christ. We must carry the burdens of one another, of our weaker brothers and sisters. For what purpose? So that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ might be built up. Paul even mentions this idea of the building up of the body of Christ in Ephesians chapter 4 as he relates, as he relates it to the gifts that God has given to his church. See, ultimately, friend, you should not be here for yourself. This church is not about you, and it's not about me. This church is not ultimately about your desire or my desire. This church is ultimately about the person of Christ but we demonstrate that we are indeed pointing one another to Christ when we live life with one another for one another. We demonstrate, as I noted in the main theme of this passage of Scripture, the life of Christ. How? When we willingly, when we joyfully when we desire, if you will, to put other brothers and sisters first. We are an us church. We are not an I church. So this text asks a question of each of our hearts and lives. What are you? What am I? What are we doing to see other brothers and sisters built up in the faith. How much time do you spend with other people in the body of Christ here at Woodlawn outside of this gathering? How often do you find yourself having conversations, encouraging one another in the faith with people outside of Sunday school or Sunday morning. But by the way, friends, what a beautiful way to be built up in the faith. No greater way than to weave your life into the life of the body of Christ at Woodlawn and participate in the multiple ways that we as a church have decided are good ways for us to be built up in the faith. Sunday school, life groups, and a host of other ways. This is a responsibility each of us, not just me, not just Laramie, not just Travis, not just Lynn, not just the people hired by this church, 
but by every single one of us. We must carry the burdens, the weaknesses of other believers. But notice what Paul does here in verses three and four. We must follow Christ's example and live out the testimony of Scripture. Now notice what Paul does for us in verses three and four. He's going to ground this type of living. The type of living that he just called for in verses one through two, he's going to ground that in two truths, in two realities, the life of Christ and the testimony of Scripture. Look what he does first, the life of Christ. For Christ did not please himself. But as it, is, as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. He first looks to the life of Christ, and he says, Jesus has demonstrated through his life this type of response for others. What has Jesus done for us? Paul reaches all the way back to Psalm 69 that we read earlier in our worship service. Psalm 69 is one of the more quoted psalms in the New Testament and is oftentimes used as a reflection on Jesus's, um, the whole narrative of Jesus's life, his death, burial, and resurrection, but even a few times his incarnation. But in the context of this passage of scripture, I think Paul is very clearly referencing Psalm 69 to mention Jesus's death. For it is through Jesus' death that the ultimate example of giving your life for another is seen. But make no mistake about it, Paul will use Jesus' entire life in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, to reference Jesus' entire life demonstrates this type of living. What did Jesus do? the creator of the heavens and the earth, the one that created your life and my life and the earth as we see it, he willingly gave up the pleasures and the joys of heaven. And he became God incarnate. This God who who at all times had the pleasure of the angels at his service, would give up absolutely all of that and come to this earth where he would become God incarnate. and He would grow in stature and in wisdom and in knowledge. And he would ultimately give his life in a brutal death on the cross. And it's that image, friends, that Jesus compels you and me to mirror in the life of our church. It is that image that Paul compels you and me to demonstrate as we live life with one another in the context of the body of Christ. Think how this truth could radically change churches across our country if all of us lived our lives on a daily basis 
trying to see just how much like Jesus we really could be in our relationships with others. How does it change your relationship with your family, with your children, with your spouse, with your grandchildren? How does it change the way you view brothers and sisters in the context of this church that you might disagree with? Not only change the way that you view, how does it change the way that you respond to them? How does it change the way you pursue them? How does it change the way that you relate, conversate? With people you know, you have at times strong disagreements with. We will only be as healthy as a church We will only be as healthy as a church to the extent that we demonstrate the selfless sacrifice of the life of Christ in relationship with one another. Paul not only encourages us to demonstrate the life of Christ, but notice what he does in verse 5. It's not only Christ that taught us to live this way, friends. And by the way, if it was only the life of Christ that taught us to live this way, it would be completely sufficient. But it's not just the life of Christ. Paul says, hey church, this is the testimony of Scripture. This is what Scripture has taught us from the very beginning even to now. This is what Scripture demands of our lives as brothers and sisters in Christ. May the God of endurance, sorry, verse 4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through encouragement or consolation of the Scriptures, we might have hope. This is the testimony of the Word of God that has been demonstrated. Think of the Old Testament law Uh, Go back just to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Maybe let's just settle in for just a few moments in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Think of all the ways or all the rules that God has given his people for how they are to live kindly and and in relationship to one another. We have, we have rules about how we are to respond to each other's donkeys that are stuck in the ditch. We have laws. Think of the Ten Commandments. We're not to covet what? Our neighbor's possessions. This is the testimony of Scripture. Scripture has been screaming out, if you will, 
to the people of God, this is how you are to live in relationship to one another. Let's look at a couple of those passages of Scripture in the New Testament. Look with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, down through the first few verses of chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. You see, there is the life of Christ. Here is the testimony of Scripture. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk how? In love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for her as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Look in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 4. Philippians chapter 2, verse 4. Philippians chapter 2, verse 4. Let each of you. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. A few pages back. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 33. And here Paul uses some of the same language that he's used in Romans. Chapter 10, verse 33, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Christ's life has demonstrated this. The testimony of Scripture has called us to this. What Scripture? As Paul would say to Timothy in 2 Timothy, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for what? Teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Christ's life has demonstrated it. The text of Scripture itself has called us to this type of living. And then notice what he concludes with here at the end in verses 5 and 6. We seek to glorify God by pursuing unity. We seek to glorify God by pursuing unity. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now in verse 4, Paul has called the church to live out our lives. How? Through endurance and through the encouragement of Scripture that we might have 
hope. Now notice what Paul does here in verse 5. He tells us where this endurance and this encouragement comes from. How can I live my life in an enduring way? Why can every one of us be an encourager? Because this is who God is, friends. And we are all children of God. May the God of encouragement, of endurance and encouragement, he's the one who's given us endurance and encouragement. May that God grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ. For what purpose, verse 16? In order that you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, friends, when we pursue unity, when the body of Christ collectively, when you individually pursue unity, when you as an individual, when we collectively are willing to lay aside convictions from time to time on things that are of of a non-essential nature, notice what Paul says it does. It's there that we have the right expression of worship. What is Paul's ultimate concern in 1 Corinthians chapter 11? Is it ultimately a concern to give a demonstration to us about how we are to partake in the Lord's Supper? No. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is writing to rebuke the church at Corinth. Why is he rebuking them? Because when they come together for this common meal, they're acting in all type of foolish ways, and it's disrupting the unity of the body of Christ. Paul even says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that there are some people who are dead. For what reason? Because they took the Lord's Supper and ate it in a wrong way? Because they didn't pray before they took the Lord's bread? No, because they have been pursuing disunity in the body of Christ. Friends, God takes the unity of the body of Christ in a very serious way, so much so that Paul says, some people are dead because they've not been pursuing the unity of the body of Christ. I had someone ask me at lunch on Tuesday, person had been visiting our church. He asked me on lunch, he said, um, do you believe God still takes out people? So well, what do you mean? He said like Ananias and Sapphira. I said, well, two things. Number one, how do we know that God took out Ananias and Sapphira? How do I know that? Only because scripture tells us, right? I want to be very careful. I will never walk around giving a declaration, God took out Joanne Bridwell. Why? Because she didn't pursue unity with Kevin. I'll never say that. I don't have the testimony of scripture, right? Who am I to sit in judgment of who God has taken out or not taken out? I'm not going to do that. 
Number two, yes, I believe God still takes out people. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 tells us. See, friends, unity in the body of Christ is a demonstration ultimately of what we as this body of Christ think about Christ himself. What image of Christ are we displaying through our unity or our disunity? What image of Christ are you as an individual displaying through the way in which you pursue unity in the body of Christ? Or let's say more specifically, friends, can you note in real ways areas that you are laying aside so that the unity of the body of Christ at Woodlawn might be achieved? Can you demonstrate through actions, your actions, not the church's actions, your actions, can you demonstrate through your actions things that you are doing that build up the body of Christ? What are you as an individual doing so that together we may with one voice rightly worship God, glorify God, who is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, friends, the unity of Christ's church is at the very heart of what it means to be a gospel-driven, centered church. Why? Because the gospel is a narrative of this one perfect, holy being who gave up everything. Who gave up everything. So that in giving up everything, you and I might have salvation. And in like manner, Paul is calling you and me to do the exact same thing so that we might glorify and honor this great God that we've pledged our lives to. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for the crystal clear call that you have given to each of us to live our lives in such a way that we might rightly pursue you. So, Lord, I ask this morning that in the life of this church, you might deepen our commitment to one another. You might deepen our desire to pursue unity. 
that you might deepen our disregard And those ways that we as individuals seek disunity or in the way in which, Lord, we sense others pursuing that disunity. Would you spend a few moments where you're seated this morning and reflect on this text of Scripture and its evidence in your life? How does your life demonstrate the life of Christ? How does your life demonstrate the testimony of Scripture? How are you pursuing, you as an individual, how are you pursuing unity in the body of Christ? In just a few moments, friends, we're going to stand and respond to the preaching of God's Word. Perhaps you're here and you know in your own life that there's little unity. In fact, perhaps as you reflect on your life, there's just disunity everywhere. Might it be, friend, because you've never trusted in Christ And this one who has demonstrated sacrifice for us has never been applied to your life. Friend, you will never have unity in relationships, in your home, apart from the person of Christ. Would you trust in Christ today? As we sing, myself and Pastor Travis will be down front. If you have questions about what it means to trust in Christ, we'll be glad to share with you. Uh, Secondly, as we sing, perhaps you would like for one of us just to pray with you that the truths of this text of Scripture might indeed be evidenced in your life. There's no greater way for us to shepherd your heart than by praying for you. We would delight in praying for you that the truths of this text might indeed be lived out in your life. And thirdly, Maybe God has impressed upon your heart that this is a congregation in which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with Christ. This would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in being part of this faith family. Lord, as we respond to you now, we ask that our responses might be pleasing to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.